0: Welcome to Indy Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent.
1: I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno.
0: And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas.
1: On this episode of Indy Matters, environmental reporter Daniel Rothberg talks with Dr. Monica Arienzo, whose research focuses on how disintegrated plastic particles affect the environment in and around northern Nevada.
0: After that, Joey sits down with education reporter Jackie Valley and assistant editor Michelle Rendell's to chat about the latest developments in the quest for more and better-focused funding for schools.
1: And for the D.C. debrief at the end of the episode, I talk with our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, about new guidance on how federal COVID relief funds can be allocated and how Nevada representatives are pursuing influential committee assignments. This week, we have a sponsor for the podcast. We'd like to thank United Health Group for supporting the show. If you'd like to sponsor Indie Matters, email Stacy. that's S-T-A-S-Y, at the NVindie.com. Monica Arienzo is part of the Microplastics Research Team at the Desert Research Institute located in Northern Nevada. Microplastics are small pieces of plastic that vary in size and shape and come from things like synthetic fibers and plastic bags. Arienzo has been looking into how microplastics move through the ecosystem, specifically in watersheds. There have been traces of it found in our snowpacks and in our rivers and lakes. Arienzo and her team at DRI recently received a five-year grant from the National Science Foundation to study microplastics. Our environmental reporter Daniel Rothberg talked with Arienzo about microplastics this week for his newsletter In the Environment which comes out every Wednesday. I kind of just want to get a sense of what the
2: goals of the of DRI's microplastics lab are and why this is an important issue to be investigating.
3: So my research at DRI focuses on trying to understand human impacts to the environment locally here in in our region, in northern California, northern Nevada area, we've been really trying to understand the microplastics in snow and downstream water resources. So Lake Tahoe is a really great example because most of the water that's in Lake Tahoe actually comes from snow melt. So when the snow melts in the, in the springtime, that water makes its way into Lake Tahoe and then that water makes eventually its way downstream to Reno and even further downstream to, the, to Pyramid Lake. And we really want to understand how microplastics are moving in that system. So starting from the snow, so as this uh, snow accumulates in the wintertime, how much and what type of plastics are present in the snow? And then as the snow begins to melt, how are those plastics moving in that system? And then how are they making their way into streams and downstream water resources? Mm-hmm. We'll both look at spatially across the Sierras. How do microplastic concentrations vary in the snow and in water? And then we'll also look at this over time. So do we see variations as we move from, say, Tahoe, where there's a lot of people that are recreating? As we move to other parts of the Sierra where maybe there's more remote locations, do we see a different amount or type of plastics? And then how does that change as we go from year to year?
2: Yeah. What do we know about microplastics right now? And what are some of the open questions that you know you and other researchers are
3: investigating? Well, to start, there's a lot we don't know about microplastics. And this is part of why it's so exciting as a scientist. Here in the Western United States, we've seen that microplastics are present in rainwater and in snow, in the freshwater streams, and in freshwater lakes out here. We have found microplastics in fairly remote locations. Really, we are getting this picture that these are fairly ubiquitous. So we're finding them all throughout the environment. But there's a lot of questions about where are they coming from? So what are the sources of those plastics? And my group has been trying to look at one potential source being dryers. So every time you dry your clothes, that hot air vents outside of your house. So that's one source we've been tackling but other studies suggest sources like for example tire wear can be a source of rubbers but there are also maybe these very dispersed sources like you know just think about all the plastic you see in your you know daily life right the plastic on the side of the road that's ma- breaking down into smaller and smaller bits of plastic mm-hmm. so there's questions about where these plastics are coming from how are they moving through the environment those are still very open questions and a lot of work has also been focusing on impacts to freshwater ecosystems and trying to understand sort of the ecotoxicology of microplastics. It's also been a topic of discussion in the scientific literature of how exactly to define plastics, because it is this very broadly defined group of of chemicals. So there has been quite a discussion on just what is a plastic. There's also potential variation in the shape of plastics. For example, clothing will create fibers, so long and thin pieces of plastic, whereas your tire rubber may form something that's more spherical in shape versus say a plastic bag may break down to form more of a film-like shape. And so those shapes can really vary as well. And that's important when we start to think about how are these things moving in the environment? A sphere may move slightly differently than a long thin fiber.
2: I think it's really difficult for me even to kind of grasp exactly how plastic maybe being consumed in a city or from a clothing dryer could end up in some of these more remote areas that you sort of think of as pristine or untouched by humans. How does that happen and what does that signify to you?
3: I don't think we quite know how this happens yet because plastics are very different than other things that we've studied in the atmosphere for example plastic because it has this wide variety of shapes and sizes it doesn't behave like other particles we would see in the atmosphere like dust right dust we we tend to know kind of the shape and size of dust whereas plastics are have this much broader size and shape possibility range. There are some studies that have been done trying to look at tire wear and tear and how that could be moving through the atmosphere in particular. And that's because it's a little bit easier to focus on sort of one type of plastic. That is uh, sort of one way to get start to get at this question. The other way to start to get at this question is to do more monitoring. So what do we see in the environment? What what shapes, what sizes, what are the types of plastic we're seeing in the environment? And then we can start to potentially do some experiments looking at how they could be getting there, if it's through the atmosphere or other processes.
2: How how harmful are plastics to to humans or other kind of wildlife and species.
3: One of the concerns is obviously large pieces of plastic if they get consumed by an animal, they can, you know, cause puncture wounds or other like physical issues. With smaller plastics, they may be passed easily But there's also potential concerns for if there's other chemicals or other things basically attached onto that plastic. So the plastic may be acting as a vehicle for bringing other chemicals into the body of that animal or or the human. And so I think that there's a lot of work being done right now trying to understand what could be sticking to plastics and what could the potential effects be? But I'm definitely not an expert in this area.
2: Well, I guess I'm thinking about it. I interact with plastic a lot in my life. Like you were just saying, keyboard, tires, I just, everything that I, not even thinking about it. We think about water bottles and plastic bags and stuff, but there's plastic and things that I don't even think about. And I'm curious to the extent that your lab is involved in the solution stuff and human behavior side of things, how, how should the public interpret this and think about just the distribution of microplastics in the environment?
3: So I think it's something that people should be aware of. I think one of the and I think and I think the science still needs to be done so. You know, we'll definitely be seeing more in this area of trying to understand plastics and and especially like the human interaction with plastics. The really interesting thing about studying plastics is that we interact with it on a daily basis and we can all take steps to reduce the amount of plastic we use. The really big thing I would say, which unfortunately is still a problem, is properly disposing of trash. So when you drive along the highway or even when you're hiking in in the woods, right? You can still find plastic trash in these areas. And so making sure that we encourage, we ourselves and we encourage those around us to always properly dispose of plastic is really important because then at least it's, it's getting into the landfill and not into the environment.
2: What is it that makes plastic decompose in a way where you end up with microplastics? Is that heat or environmental factors
3: When we don't properly dispose of our trash and it's sitting out in the environment, it's gonna be exposed to UV radiation and that UV radiation over time will break it down and cause plastics to become more brittle. I know personally, I can share like all winter long, I had a little five gallon bucket sitting outside my house and we were storing, I think some like soil in it. And I went to lift it up this spring and it just started falling apart. And, it, and that's because it was sitting there exposed to UV radiation and that was making the plastic griddle. So when I went to pick it up, it just broke. So the UV radiation is really important things like exposure to heat, to freeze and thaw. All of those can also be really important for causing the sort of flaking and breakdown of the outermost part of the plastic. So there's both like this form of like chemical weathering and then this form of physical weathering where you have physical breakdown of those plastics as well. Is there
2: anything else that you wanted to add?
3: I think for me the the fun part about studying microplastics is 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 the connection that we all have to plastics and sort of it's not this sort of, you know, ambiguous chemical, right? We all interact with plastics and we all have a role to play in helping to re- reduce our plastic use encourage recycling. And I think that I really enjoy that part of studying this. I know my students are all super motivated to study this because it is something that they interact with. That part as well makes it really a fun area of research And I think that there's a lot of opportunities for ways we can engage the public in our research. So whether it be through citizen science or through cleanups or something like that. And that's something we've done in the past and we plan to continue to do in the future because it is such an important part of the research we do.
1: That was our environmental reporter, Daniel Rothberg, talking with the Desert Research Institute's Monica Arienzo. If you want to read more of Daniel's reporting, you can find it on our website as well as by subscribing to Indie Environment by clicking on the subscription box on the right side of our website. All right, and so I am here with our education reporter, Jackie Valley and assistant editor, Michelle Rendells, to talk about this funding formula bill that's been going through the legislature. Education funding formula is kind of this thing that, it's it's how education is funded in Nevada, it's how they decide money per pupil. And I think it's kind of a confusing concept for people that aren't like involved in the process. So Jackie, can we just start by explaining what the funding formula does and doesn't do?
4: So yeah, it's been a long journey to get to this point with funding in Nevada. Advocates for years, maybe even a decade or so, have been calling for a revamp of the funding formula, which was 54 years old, and as some lawmakers pointed out, was the one that served their parents, and now it's still serving their grandkids and great-grandkids. So Nevada has obviously changed a ton since then, but the funding mechanism hasn't taken into account the demographic changes or just the... Change in circumstances regarding education in the 21st century. So what happened was in the 2019 session, lawmakers passed SB 543, which created a new funding plan called the people-centered funding plan. It you know lays out the the broad outline of how it would work, and essentially sweeps all the funding streams into one pot for the sake of more transparency and less complexity. <laughs> and then we'll dole it out to districts, and then to students with the weighted per pupil spending as well. And that's a new concept. And that involves sending more money to kids who need extra resources. So we're talking about students who are learning English as a second language, or students who are gifted or talented, or students who are defined as at risk, which could be that they're living in poverty, or for whatever reason are performing in the bottom quartile of students. So in theory, this is supposed to help level the playing field by giving districts and students the right amount of money to help serve them. But what didn't happen at the end of last session is any infusion of money for that plan. And Nevada has been chronically underfunded. I think there's pretty much unanimous agreement on that. So There's been critics who've said, well, okay, great, we have this new funding plan, but without more money, it's just a reallocation of existing funds. And what good is it really going to do? So, this SB 439 is the new bill that just emerged a few days ago. And it's nothing super exciting. It's kind of a technical bill that would implement the new funding formula because of the fact that it is implementing the new funding formula without that additional revenue. You know, in 2015,
5: the legislature approved a variety of programs that were sort of the precursor to this weighted concept. So you had Zoom schools, even that even predated 2015, victory schools, you had an infusion of money towards anti-bullying programs, and then you had a read by three infusion of money. So there were a bunch of different isolated streams of money directly tied to specific outcomes. That was always framed back in the day as a way that we would test out this idea of weighted funding and see if it worked and then move towards weighted funding, like Jackie said. And the problem with the current system is that if you're in a Zoom school, you're getting extra resources. A Zoom school is a school that has a high proportion of English language learners, a Victory School is one of the schools in the poorest zip codes in the state. So it's generally trying to help at risk, low income students. So the thing is, Republicans really ended up kind of liking this model, especially as it comes to things like literacy. So you can kind of more easily track when students' reading scores go up that was tied to, let's just say, $50 million spent on read by grade three and literacy supports. The thing that's the problem now is, as Jackie's saying, there's no new infusion of money. So you've got 250,000 at-risk kids in the in the state, let's just say, and you're spreading the same amount of money across all of them instead of across just, say, 25,000. So here you go. You're, you're diluting it across the entire student body. So every student is benefiting, but at a lower level. So that's why there's concern that this transition is not going to help students.
1: And and, and let's talk about like school funding here a little bit more broadly, because once the pandemic hit, there was a lot of budget cuts throughout the state. Education took a hit. Has that been restored? Are they funding education more? You said like, you know, there hasn't been an increase in funding. What are we looking at in terms of education funding in Nevada, which is notoriously one of the lowest funded states for education?
5: So some of the cuts that happened last summer have been restored, but not to 100%. And we have not seen the results of, for example, the Economic Forum projecting higher than expected revenues. That's an infusion of more than $900 million into the budget. So we haven't really seen that money be distributed. We also haven't really seen the $2.7 billion the federal government is giving through the American Rescue Plan redistributed. Part of that is just that they need to kind of finalize the project they'd been working on, the budgets they'd been working with. And then they can go back and see where do we want to add this money? Because every department is probably asking for their cuts to be fully restored. And maybe that's uh, not entirely possible or maybe not the wisest plan. So I think in the coming days, we're going to see where that money goes. Is that money going to go largely to education and restore funding levels or boost funding levels? So I think I think we need to wait and see on where legislators fall on that. And I think it's probably going to happen after this week.
4: The other thing with the federal funding, there's been a lot of talk about this huge windfall coming to school districts. And it, and it really is. It's a great thing. But It's also meant to mitigate some of the harms caused by the pandemic academically, and it's also a fiscal cliff. So it's not going to be a reoccurring amount of money that we can pull from for these weights. So it's not the infusion of funding that the state needs for longevity's sake.
1: You know, there's there's also been a lot of talk about raising revenue for education. How, How has that been going?
4: So that's been interesting to watch unfold as well. All the teacher unions, I think, pretty much agree that we need more funding, and you'll hear them say that in testimony, but there's a division in terms of who wants to move forward with the new funding formula and who doesn't. For instance, the Clark County Education Association, which is the bargaining unit in Clark County and represents a lot of the teachers there, they are in favor of moving forward with this, and they've been very open about that, pushing it. But they're also saying, ultimately, we need more money. Now, on the other side of the fence, you have the Nevada State Education Association and some of its local affiliates who have said the opposite, you know, that this shouldn't be moving forward because it lacks the critical funding. And until we make that step, there's no use in implementing it. So it's not entirely unanimous.
5: The proposals that you had mentioned that were brought forward by the Clark County Education Association are not being addressed by the legislature so they will presumably proceed to the ballot in 2022, and people will have a chance to vote on whether they want to increase the sales tax and the gaming tax. Now, there could be something that happens in the middle of that, and the CCEA could withdraw those petitions. But if they don't, I expect what you're going to see is a really full court press from the business community and the gaming community to try to kill those measures. And historically, major tax petitions that go on the ballot lose pretty heavily, especially because we're coming up onto a midterm year where people tend to vote against the incumbent powers, which are the Democrats. So I I expect that that would face a pretty tough battle if it does get on the ballot. Uh, So right now we're kind of looking at some alternatives there's an ongoing discussion about somehow getting more money out of mining, but we haven't had a hearing on that in the legislature. So it's kind of unclear where that's going right now. And then some other forms such as recommendations from the Commission on School Funding, which include raising property taxes, kind of adjusting how we do property tax, and also potentially expanding the sales tax to services like getting your nails done and getting a massage. Those are not likely to come up during this session. The legislators have pretty much closed the door on those for now. But as Jackie's saying, the federal money that's coming in through the COVID relief is a one-time infusion and they need to, at some point, figure out a longer-term,
1: constant funding stream. Uh,
5: so the genius. bottom
4: line is it's being punted once again, most likely. All
1: right. Well, I think we'll leave it there for now. Obviously, this is a pretty complicated topic. And if you want any updates on any of this as it's going through the legislature, make sure to follow us. Michelle and Riley are down there reporting on it every day, every bill hearing that's going on, as well as Tabitha Mueller. Jackie, I'm sure you're following it from, from Las Vegas, watching all the fun education hearings. So thank you guys so much for for joining me today.
5: Thanks, Joey.
1: Thank you, Joey. And I am here with Humberto Sanchez, our man in D.C., and we're doing the D.C. debrief this week, talking about all things Nevada, but happening in in the nation's capital. Humberto, we always start out with the weather. How is the weather in D.C.?
6: It's delightful. It's like uh, 67, 70-ish. It's it's wonderful. Yeah, it's about
1: the same here. <laughs> A little drier, probably.
6: No doubt. No I
1: mean, doubt. 70s and 80s up here in Reno. Also, you're calling from the first time, from the Capitol. You haven't been in the Capitol in a while. At least you have, we haven't talked where you're in the Capitol.
6: Yeah, no, it's been a while. The last time was September. So it was, uh, yeah, this place is still kind of only just coming back. It's still not at full capacity. Still hasn't been open to the public yet, which is something they want to do. Mass restrictions are starting to, to ease. And I think people are looking forward to that, but this is usually, this place is usually choked with tourists this time of year, which I expect to to happen again soon before the summer ends. Yeah, so right now it's
1: pretty quiet. You're the only person in the little press room. So, I want to start with we got some we got some information from the federal government, some guidance on how the 350 billion dollars that was allocated to states for relief can be used. And so Nevada got 2.7 billion of that and then some state and like local localities got some more money. So how 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 can the state spend all of this money that the federal government is giving them?
6: They can use it to offset budget shortfalls, which is a big deal the state right now it's putting together its budget. And this guidance was actually timed to come out for states because the, every state, I believe, for the most part, their their budget uh, year begins July 1. Nevada is no different. And so they're in the middle of this these budget negotiations. So this funding is really going to help the state's shortfall, the state's budget hole, which I believe was 1.2 billion. So this will be able to help them plug that in. They're getting 2.7 billion. So that's well they'll have enough left over to do other stuff and which is important because according to the treasury you can use that fund for public health expenses you can use it to offset the downturn to workers the small businesses from the pandemic you can also use it to for to pay essential workers premium pay you can also use it for water sewer and broadband projects which is broadband in particular is a big deal especially in the rurals in Nevada so this is I'm sure this is a welcome, welcome funding. And I, I saw the governor put out a release saying he looked forward to using it. And the entire delegation has, has also chimed in. Democrats saying that they know that the legislature and the governor will use it wisely. And our, the lone Republican, Representative Mark Amade, his take was basically that, that I guess since last March, there's been about six trillion in, in aid pumped into the states through various mechanisms. He thinks there's about thirty eight billion that's come to Nevada. So he's just hopeful that none of it is u- is misused. He's raised concerns about possible abuse, and he his quote was something to the effect that he hopes once all is said and done, you can look back and that they, they used it in a in a strong and sensible way.
1: And on top of the 2.7 billion that the state got, some local like so Clark and Washoe County, you know, they all got some chunk of the pie as well. It's it, same guidelines for them.
6: Yes, yes, and and one big caveat that the Congress said specifically that the state and local governments can't use it to offset tax cuts, that's a big deal. They want that money to be plugged into the economy directly. And if you use it to offset tax cuts, Congress, Democrats in Congress thought that that was not a good use of the funding, but you can also use it down to pay down any debt and you can't use it down to bolster your reserve funds. They want that to be, to be essentially given out to the population in one sense, in one way or the other.
4: All right,
1: and that's like I said, that's three hundred fifty billion dollars spread out over all the United States. Um, right, and then Clark got like four hundred million or something like that. Four
6: hundred and forty million for Clark County.
1: And then another story that we cannot uh, happen this week, other than how how states can spend their money, is uh, Representative Horsford, Stephen Horsford. He is he is joining the House Armed Services
6: Committee. Can you kind of explain, you know, why that's a big deal? Sure. Each congressional session, the the, the Latest two-year congressional session started in January when President Biden was inaugurated about that time. And there's always a a shuffle of of committee spots. People who who lost open up spots, open up, and people move into these other spots. And so Representative Horsford applied to get on the House Armed Services Committee, and he was accepted. He had to get a waiver for that, actually, because he's on what's known as an exclusive committee. And technically, you're only allowed to be on one of those. He's on two of those. So this will be his second waiver. So the house armed service committee is also an exclusive committee. So he will be on three exclusive committees, which is budget. He's on house ways and means. So he does tax policy and now he's on armed services. So he does a military policy. And that's a big deal because his district includes several military installations of the ones that are in Nevada, which are several. He has Nellis air force base. He has Creech air force base. He has the Nevada test and training range. And he also has the Hawthorne army depot all in his district. So he'll, he has a lot of veterans to worry about and he has a lot of military hardware to worry about. And this is a, a way to directly affect and make policy on those issues. And there are a ton of veterans, uh, retired and active service people in, in that district. So they're, they're a big constituency for him. So this is a, a really good place for him to be.
1: All right. Well, Humberto, thank you so much for filling us in this week. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon.
6: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters.
1: We'd like to thank Daniel Rothberg, Dr. Monica Arienzo, Jackie Valley, Michelle Rendell's, and Humberto Sanchez for being on the show this week.
0: Leave us a review wherever you listen. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, we're on every platform. Also, share the podcast with a friend or on social media. It helps the show grow so we can continue to bring you fantastic interviews and updates every week.
1: We have a new monthly newsletter for the podcast. It's called Soundcheck, written by me with contributions from the rest of the team. It highlights the best of the podcast as well as interviews that didn't make it onto the show. We also have recommendations for things to read, watch, and listen to from the staff. Subscribe today by clicking on the subscribe button on the right side of our website.
0: You can also email us with any questions, comments, concerns, trail mix recipes, your favorite emojis, or whatever else is on your mind. You can reach me at jacob at the com. And Joey is at joey at com.
1: Reno band People with Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There's additional music in today's episode from me, Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato.
0: And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis.
1: And we'll talk to you next week. Today's show was brought to you by United Health Group. Thank you for listening to Indy Matters.
0: Hang on. Another big truck. The back? The truck's back? The
1: truck? Yeah, it's, I think it was another truck.
0: <laughs> oh, no.